0: Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Experts Only. Uh, our podcast that focuses on the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance. We're actually live here at Solar Power International in Anaheim. Uh, We're here today having a fascinating conversation about the economics of microgrids, really defining the business opportunity. And we're going to introduce our speakers here in a second. Uh, If you've not been to Solar Power International, uh, next year the show will be in Salt Lake City, and it's well worth attending uh, to see some of the most innovative conversations of what's happening in the space. Thanks. We're going to have audience participation. This is a little bit different than our normal podcast. So. Uh we a, was sort of, it's about a 90 minute uh, run compared to our normal sort of 20 minute show, so just warning for those listeners. And thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as I mentioned, my name's John Powers, I'm the co-founder of Clean Capital. My background is more broadly in energy security. I served as the first special advisor on energy to the Army and helped stand up the Army's clean energy programs, and then later on went to the White House where I served as President Obama's Chief Sustainability Officer. Worked a lot on energy security, Uh, Including before launching Clean Capital with Bloom Energy, where I oversaw the public sector business development, including um, some microgrids, which is what I'm going to talk about here in a second. Why we think the space is so important today, and why are we talking about it here at Solar Power International? We're all witnessing a time that our grid is transforming. You know, we had a very sophisticated 20th century grid that has 3,300 utilities, 5,000 substations, five million miles of utility wire, distribution wire, but that is now at risk. There's multiple threats, which we'll talk about, that's driving corporate America to move to the concept of distributed energy. I think being here at Solar Power International, you probably recognize that, so we won't talk too much of the 101 version of that, but this transformation is happening in real time. The question comes down to how do we start to really grow and scale that transformation in which is critical to both finance and the business models of these deals. So some of the things that are driving those changes, if you flash back to Superstorm Sandy that came through the Northeast and caused over $50 billion in damage, uh, shut down New York City, Wall Street, parts of New Jersey, Connecticut. You had major corporations who had strategies to back their power up through diesel generation for instance. And what faced the reality of that storm is the diesel that was being provided to the area at the time wasn't going to the big box stores. It was going to the first responders, it was going to the military bases, it was going to the hospitals. You had facilities in downtown Manhattan that had their generators in their basements, which became useless when they got flooded. So companies really started to look at the idea of distributed generation but so did the policymakers. And places like New York and Connecticut and New Jersey started putting in test pilots around things like microgrids. So one of the things we did when I was at Bloom Energy is we worked in -in hand-in-hand with the city of Hartford and developed the first of its kind fuel cell driven microgrid that could island a gas station, a community center, and a grocery store in case of a need uh, of, of another Superstorm Sandy. The challenge of that was not the technology, The technology is there, the software for the most part has come along and is there. The business model though was a major struggle. How are we going to set this up and for instance, in this case we ended up having multiple contracts. Let me give you an example, the pilot money provided by the state went to the development of the microgrid but not for the management of the microgrid or the acquisition of the power that was going to flow through the microgrid. So we had to have a series of contracts, power purchase agreements between the generation and the off-taker, an agreement between the generation and the microgrid manager that defined when the power from that generation became the responsibility of the microgrid, and then a variety of contracts for the management of that microgrid. For someone who sits on the finance side now, that is a mess to try to finance, right? Something that's not scalable. So we have to think through these business models as we're seeing pilots grow through the policies like the Rev proceedings in New York, or here in California, there's significant microgrid efforts going on. So those different business models I think will get tackled, and as they get tackled, we'll begin to see some efficiencies, and those efficiencies will drive more and more scale. But our experts here have way more experience this than I do, and I want to introduce them one by one through their sort of introductory statements. And in their introduction, I'm gonna have them introduce a little bit about themselves. Uh, We're gonna start with David Rubin, who serves as the Director of Strategy Formulation for PG&E. David's got deep experience working across some of the challenges facing microgrids today. Um, and Those facing the utilities are very complicated solutions. David, what sort of led to your interest, first of all, in the energy space, and then later on into the microgrid space?
1: Okay, well thank you, John, and good afternoon, everybody. For those of you that are listening in and not in the room, we have a tremendous turnout of people here. It's standing room only. It's the (laughs) biggest audience I've ever seen. The numbers are phenomenal. So thank you for showing up. Um, So I've worked for PG&E since 1985 and and really started working in energy prior to joining PG&E. I worked with the city of San Francisco for several years. Uh, Prior to that, uh, in the DC area with a consulting firm, and then I was in the Peace Corner. I noticed that Sacha and I have that in common. So I've always been interested in energy and renewable energy in particular. Um, So moving fast forward to microgrids, back in around the 2002, 2003 timeframe, um, and I think Sachi might have been at the Public Utilities Commission around that time. Just, uh, just after lines. that. Uh, we started administering a program called the Self-Gen Incentive Program that came about in order to offer financial incentives for customers to put in clean energy devices on their side of the meter, which eventually sort of grew um, both in scale as well as it splintered off the California Solar Initiative in the 2006-2007 time frame. So my experience at pg e has been on working Uh, with customers on various types of clean energy solutions for their facilities. I developed our community solar program back in the 2000 plus or minus 12 timeframe, so it just seemed natural that when microgrids looked like they were becoming a thing, and I think we would say they are now a thing, it was an opportunity again for us to expand the way that we serve our customers and respond to specific customer needs for, in this case, resiliency.
0: Interesting. And was the leadership of the utility. As you sounds like you're working on some very innovative problems within the utility. They see uh, a role like yours addressing that next innovative leap.
1: Yeah, I mean there are a number of people within the companies sure. that you know that work hard every day in order to meet the needs of our customers and manage a variety of different types of programs to do that. This seemed a little bit more out on the edge, and for better or for worse, they usually threw me the things that were more edgy.
0: It's <laughs> good. It's a good place to be. My next question is to Miranda Ballantine. I've known Miranda for quite some time. She's the CEO of Constant Power. Uh, Miranda has served in a few organizations you might have heard of, Walmart, the Air Force. Uh, she served as the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Energy. And I want to talk more about the military later. We've got a lot of military uh, experience in the panel. Um, but you have a, a really deep background in energy assurity, resiliency, security, as well as pr- procurement there. So you know, first of all, what got you interested in this space and then, you know, how, how do you see sort of the microgrid market affecting the issues that you care about?
2: So, hi, everybody. Nice to be here. I'm Miranda Ballantyne. So my very first work on microgrids was in the early 2000s, maybe 2001, 2002, when I worked for a small NGO called the Solar Electric Light Fund that brings microgrids to remote parts of the developing world that have no access to power, um, really as a way to to solve economic, health, and uh, educational challenges, actually. So that's when I first was sort of exposed to the concept of microgrids and not being connected to a centralized power plant. Uh, Fast forward a number of years at Walmart, where I was in charge of global renewable energy strategy and sustainable facility strategy, uh, Walmart US had a very active distributed generation program. So probably most folks know that Walmart set a goal in 2004 to be supplied by 100% renewable energy, a pretty audacious goal, certainly at that time, one of the first, if not the first 100% renewable energy goals. Um, And we had some very intentional discussions around how do we get there? Obviously the fastest way to get there is to procure large-scale, utility-scale wind, solar, hydro um, that's off-site. And so we could have done that, and we do do that, or they do that, I should say that they at this point, I guess, it's been, it's been a number of years since I've worked there. Um, but we had some very, very intentional discussions around the role of distributed generation. And we're very intentional about choosing a DER strategy. And it, frankly, was for resilience purposes. Now, in that, in that setting, the resilience is much more focused on Mother Nature as the adversary. And I know we'll talk about the range of adversaries that we think about today um, that can perpetrate attra- attacks against the power grid. But in those days, um, sort of 2005 to 2010 time frame, it really was how do we protect fresh and frozen food stock from a storm? And the only way to really do that is in what I would call almost a nano grid So Walmart very early on was not only doing rooftop solar, but pairing rooftop solar with energy storage, working with Bloom, Tesla, before Tesla's Powerwall was even a thing. We were doing experiments on stores here in California, um, really for the purpose of resilience. Then fast forward to my time in the Pentagon, um, and that's where I really started to focus on microgrids from a national security, grid security, and grid resilience perspective and I became I became convinced that the DER movement, if properly executed, planned, thought out, could be a significant benefit to our national security, to our energy security, to our grid resilience. However, conversely, if the companies that were deploying microgrids, DERs, storage, and uh, distributed generation were not thinking about security, Cybersecurity resilience, that in fact, we could have the opposite impact on our grid by, uh, by expanding the attack space essentially, particularly for, for cyber uh, threats against the grid. So that's when I came to the supply side of the equation, now work for a very small startup in Ontario, uh, doing behind the meter storage as a service, um, with a very strong emphasis with our suppliers on understanding how they are integrating cyber security and uh, physical security into their assets and systems.
0: And for those who don't know, Ontario is sort of on the leading edge right now in the storage space, doing really yeah. interesting uh, interesting work. So my next question is to Satu Constantine, who first and foremost, I learned last night, is a phenomenal dancer.
3: Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> he's also the managing director of, uh, for regulatory at Vote Solar. If you don't know Vote Solar for a second, I wanna step back and give a quick Vote Solar commercial. There's an earlier episode, or at Experts Only, where we interviewed the CEO of Boat Solar, Adam Browning. Boat Solar is an incredibly powerful nonprofit that is out advocating for the policies that we all think are important to help drive our industry forward. So it's critical for us as business leaders, as policy leaders and others to support the efforts of groups like Boat Solar to make sure that the policies we need at the state level are being championed. So I sort of challenge y'all to go to their website and see the work they're doing. But back to the topic at hand, He's served in many such, many diverse environments, uh, to include Ghana with the Peace Corps. We've got two Peace Corps folks now on, on the stage, as well as uh, Berkeley. Two Peace Corps uh, and
2: three DOD. What yeah, does that say right. about
0: our panel? <laughs> <laughs> It's a public service <laughs> stage. So I going to talk a little bit about your experiences, how this led you to an in interest in sustainable energy, and then in resiliency as well.
4: All right. Well, thank you. I'm pretty sure I used up all of my remaining dance mojo last night so <laughs> so don't ask tonight don't ask don't ask again it's
0: a podcast i can't see it anyways
4: you know i was actually i was actually noticing that same thing as as we were going through the introductions here the some of our early experiences were very similar we got to see sort of stripped down to its barest uh, most essential elements why do we build electricity grids. Why do we deliver energy the way that we do? It's to provide services to people. And when I was in the Peace Corps, of course, uh, most uh, of my environment was unserved or at the very best underserved by, by the sort of national grid. And so we were actually already trying to develop microgrids in, in a very rudimentary sense. But uh, I think the frame that that gave me was that you know, if you strip everything down, this great machine that we've built, the, the grid, probably the greatest machine that that we've ever built, uh, you know, ultimately it started as microgrids. It started as an accretion of microgrids, and we built the long line transmission then to start to connect those things. So we're really getting back to core principles, and I think that's, that's what I took away from that Peace Corps experience. Also, obviously, if you work in sub-Saharan Africa, maybe not so much Ghana, because it has a fairly f- sophisticated infrastructure, but in, in parts of Kenya, and uh, I worked in Uganda and South Africa, you had large pockets of populations that simply had no, no transmission grid. So the leapfrogging opportunity for the microgrid was huge. The ability to kind of jump over this stage of developing a very extensive long line transmission out to distribution feeders and, and so on. You could just go right to a microgrid and this is all happening at a time when solar and storage and other technologies are finally kind of coming into their own. So now you have multiple options for how to power that microgrid. I think that, that, that sort of fascination and that recognition of what that need was and how we could serve that need sort of carried over into my, my career here. I did spend time in, in D.C. long after Peace Corps working overseas in, in sub-Saharan Africa and Asia. And microgrids in most of the countries that I worked in were, were a real opportunity. So they, they they stayed with me in that sense. Uh, I've been in solar. Actually, as David mentioned, I started at the, at the PUC specifically on solar, working on the, the CSI and some of the other self-generation programs that we had there. I moved on from that r- really formative experience in terms of solar policy over to the Center for Sustainable Energy, which happened to implement some of those programs that we were overseeing at, at the CPUC in parallel with PG&E and, and Southern California Edison. So we, I, I have been, throughout my career now, looking at what the barriers are to solar, trying to figure out, is it incentives, is it policy, is it some combination or lack thereof that we need to put out there? And one of the things, again, coming back to microgrids, one of the things that's nice about it is that it really starkly illustrates what, what and why we're doing this. Microgrids have the ability to incorporate more renewables on, in, a, in a contained way. Uh, but they can continue to operate in blue-sky operations with with the grid and perhaps provide services. And we'll I think we'll touch on that as we yeah. go through this conversation. But I think you know, microgrids uh, are really just an extension of, of the desire to provide good, quality, clean, modern service to customers out there.
0: And in the regulatory side with both Solar, what are you seeing today that you're, you're sort of pushing forward on a policy side?
4: No secret that Vote Solar has uh, historically uh, worked to expand and defend things like net metering policies, compensation packages for solar. We're going to continue to do that. We're at a we're at a stage where some states with high penetration are thinking about modifications and alternatives to to the traditional net metering. But effectively, that customer tariff—that's one thing we're going to be looking at. Particularly here in California, we've got the the follow-on successor tariff proceeding. Uh, we're also really interested in, in developing this stack of values for solar, which I think includes microgrids. What are all the services that solar plus smart inverters plus storage plus DR and plus energy efficiency, what can it provide to the grid? And, and again, core principles, the grid of the future is likely to be a lot of, in essence, microgrids or large microgrids or nano grids, all tied together some way, all able to function uh, in smart and sometimes independent ways. So excellent. we're going to be working on those policies.
0: Yeah, sure. exciting. Um, and lastly, Mike, Mike Wu, who's the principal of Convert Strategies. Mike served as a special advisor on energy to the Air Force, and he really saw an opportunity to engage stakeholders in helping them sort of understand the need for developing microgrids. Before uh, at lunch today, Mike and I were talking, he told me a story about some of the work they're doing Right now with uh, some installations where they're going in and actually working with the facility team to show them what it means if they had for instance their uh, utilities knocked out for 10 20 30 days and what it meant for their operations and helping them think through the needs to address this so Mike you know first of all how did you get interested in clean energy and then you know with that other piece in mind you know, what do you see as some of the driving threats that's causing uh, folks to really um, get an interest in distributed generation of microgrids.
5: Yeah, thanks, John. Um, and it's awesome to be able to share the stage uh, with two of my closest professional mentors, my old boss. Um, so, so John, your question about how did I get interested in clean energy was Former really- boss. was boss. Really, yeah, sorry.
0: <laughs>
5: sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, was really you. Um, my first job in energy was uh, uh, helping run a coalition of military veterans who advocate for clean energy from a national security perspective called Operation Free that was founded by uh, none other than John Powers, um, and from there I met Miranda Ballantyne at a conference and said, oh, I wanna work for her. I got everybody who I knew who knew her to barrage her with emails, to convince her that she needed to hire somebody, and that he, it should be he's me. He's not kidding. Yeah, so, including John, yeah, uh, who idea. I listed in that um, work. Um, so, uh, so Working for Miranda, amazing. Um, taking on the Air Force, which is one of the world's largest the world's largest consumer of energy, um, and thinking about how they would apply um, new technologies to maintain critical operations during times of disruption. And leaving the Air Force, uh, we uh, started a company called Converge Strategies, which is a consulting firm focused on the intersection of advanced energy resilience and national security. So, getting an opportunity not only to work. Um, outside the Air Force, but with the Department of Defense and and the rest of the military services. So really seeing how our military is considering the threat and increasingly concerned about the risk of long-term widespread regional disruptions, um, but also seeing how other stakeholders, commercial um, players, state governments, are starting to confront that threat as well. I mean, I think one of the things that we saw recently was an extraordinary series of webinars that the Department of Homeland Security held which detail in forensic precision how um, Russian hackers have access to operational controls of centralized power plants. Um, This is one example of determined adversaries that have access uh, to our critical infrastructure. It's not the only example. Um, it's. Uh, I think DHS and FBI should be commended um, for uh, articulating this threat in an unclassified way. Um, but it is just one example of capabilities that um, our, uh, our adversaries have. So I think that.
0: Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What do you what do you think they did articulate? I mean, in many cases, having having some national security background would never talk about that, right? But here's, right. they made That's an right. effort to get out. De- I mean, it was even in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. That's right. It declassified it and made an effort to educate folks. What was what was driving that
5: from for DHS? I think there's an increasing awareness that they have to. Yeah. Um, that there's no. Question: Whether um, this access exists, and that if they didn't make this public, and didn't, and you know, they did things like anonymize um, the information so you couldn't tell what utility or you know who the exact actor was. So things that protected sources and methods um, for our intelligence community, they did do that. So I think they were thoughtful about it. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it's becoming too important. To ignore or to wait for um, an incident, um, it's something that we need to get left of boom to really consider. And it's just one of the fundamental threats that we're facing now that are different um, than they have been before. In 2017, we had the largest power outage in US history uh, in Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands. We're seeing, you know, obviously uh, once in a hundred year storms, Uh, more frequently and more severely. Um, And we're seeing um, a lot of long-term threats to particularly military readiness, but everybody else too. So one of the things working at Converge um, and and sort of having a broader view than just the Air Force is questions that everybody should be asking themselves are, what are your critical requirements? Um, What do you need to maintain Uh, whatever it is you do that's most important and achieve your mission. Um, What are your capabilities of achieving those requirements across a range of disruption scenarios? And what are the current gaps that exist between those things? And I think that's the framework that we've tried to apply definitely within the military, but I think is gonna be applicable increasingly throughout. And I thought Satu made a really good um, articulation of how, uh, how the grid of the future really needs to look. Uh, Last thing is the approach of the Kurd administration appears to not be in that vein. It appears to be focusing on um, how do we maintain generation for what they they are calling fuel secure generation, which is really code for coal and nuclear plants, um, when the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of disruptions don't occur at the generation level they occur at the transmission and even more overwhelmingly at the distribution level. Um, And that's a conversation that maybe we can get into more, but it's disrupting the distributed energy revolution that I think we're all invested in. Yeah, interesting.
0: So, you know, as we've talked, the threats are real. uh, There's action being taken. Uh, I want to talk for a second, a little bit about the, the evolving market for microgrids. And Miranda, when you, you and I first met, you were at Walmart and you've really been working on some really innovative procurement efforts at Walmart to help lead the way for them to go out and, and, and make the business decision to buy clean energy and distributed generation. Um, as we've talked about, in, you know companies like Walmart, Apple for the data centers, other, other, uh, the military are committed to these strategies of behind the meter generation and putting generation under their control or in partnership with the utilities. But to do that, you know, we've had some real innovation on the procurement side of that, right? If you really flash the early parts of the 2000s, most large corporations would just pay their utility bill. They weren't. They didn't have internal energy procurement shops, right? I mean, the work that Apple's doing, eBay's doing, of course, Walmart's doing is is cutting edge from an energy procurement perspective. Not everyone has those resources to put forward, but because they've done that, you've got some really innovative procurement uh, things that have procurement strategies that have developed. Can you talk about the development of those strategies and and you know maybe how those could tie into where we're headed with microgrids?
2: Sure. And it's sort of funny that you say that because nowadays we think of renewable energy PPAs as the norm. Yeah. It doesn't feel particularly innovative. We just do renewable energy PPAs, whether it's a VPPA for off-site or a straight-up PPA for on-site. Um, but certainly in 2004, 2005, you know, really, through 2010, it was very, it was very new, um, right. and something that Walmart certainly pioneered in those early days. Now, what we're seeing is more and more innovation around aggregation, um, but really, all of that's still focused on utility-scale off-site stuff. So, um, I think the the place where we're going to need innovation for microgrids is really comes back to what Mike was saying, which is. The buyers need to determine what their requirements are if there's an outage. They need to understand the threat environment and the the balance between high risk but low impact outages, brownouts that happen, I don't know, every six months or so. I have some clients right now that are so impacted by brownouts every year that all they really want are UPS systems, right? then you've got the the high the high impact, low-risk scenarios, and understanding a company or an organization's risk tolerance for those different types of outages. And then how do you value keeping your power up? So if you're Walmart, it's kind of easy. You look at how much what's the value of your fresh and frozen food stock in a particular store? Is it $10 million? Is it half a million dollars? And if you If you do the analysis and say, oh, the next time a storm comes through, we're gonna be out for three days and we're gonna lose $10 million of fresh and frozen food stock, suddenly investing in a bloom fuel cell or the additional cost to add battery to your on-site solar starts to look economical. If you're the Air Force and you look at a high, high risk, or low risk but high impact scenario, and you start to say, okay, well, what is the value of keeping remotely piloted vehicles flying over the Middle East? What's the the value of that? And how do we build that into the economics of how we do these deals? Um, It gets really complicated. And there is no clear answer. It depends on who the off-taker is. Yeah. So.
0: And do you find off-takers really beginning to educate themselves? I mean, they're really sophisticated ones making these decisions. Data centers may be an easy way to do it, but once you get beyond that to, you know whether you've got a, a warehouse doing distributions, or you know what, what does it mean for you know uh, sort of a mid-tier big box store? Like how do they make those decisions? I,
2: I would say that in in the off-taker community, the idea of resilience and security and using microgrids to solve that problem, in particular using renewably powered microgrids, is still not it's not common. It's not it's not an everyday part of the conversation. Still with with major C&I takers, the conversation is more around getting to zero carbon, lowering energy bills, future price risk hedging, that kind of thing. Um, you're seeing more and more conversation about it, but co- again, coming to the point of why was it important for DHS and FBI to declassify the information. I was on a panel an hour ago where one of my, one of my fellow panelists, I hope he's not here, quite literally said, well, there's never been an attack against a grid. And I about fell off the stage. Um, I about fell off the stage. And I said, "We had a 2015 attack in the Ukraine that took the whole grid down. And every single day, our grid is being attacked in this country. And it's declassified, and the you know the, the it's being disseminated in in about the most public ways that it can be. But there is a." There is, to you know to actually give him some credit, I think there is a false sense of security because our colleagues at the utilities have done such a darn good job in keeping us up 98% of the time. Right. And they are so resilient against Mother Nature as an adversary that we have been lulled into a false sense of complacency, in my view. Um, and in general, even the CNI customers who don't have security clearances are not thinking about these additional threats to the grid and what it may mean for their business
0: right i'm going to come back to the utilities in a second david before we do that um the business drivers are key but so are the policy drivers right there's a lot happening in the policy space Satya, that is helping to really drive the distributed generation market right here in california the state's been a leader in establishing renewable goals storage programs so much more you've got really interesting proceedings happening in New York around the red policies. You've got pilot programs in Connecticut uh, around microgrids, a lot being driven by the superstorm Sandy effects. But as policies matured to address this evolution,
4: what are you seeing sort of in the energy markets and sort of where do you see this going from a policy perspective? Well, it's a great question. I mean, we, we've long had this adage in the solar industry that it, that it's a, it's a policy-driven market. And I think that, unfortunately, still remains true. I mean, the, the ideal, of course, would be to move from a policy-driven market to a market-driven market. Right. <laughs> but we're not quite there yet. Uh, you mentioned a couple of programs, and actually you, you referred to the, the Hartford project that you work on, which came under this, this uh, Connecticut microgrid program. New York has a microgrid program. Uh, we are seeing sort of small versions of that crop up. Uh, the interesting thing about a lot of those microgrids, particularly in Connecticut, is they're not 100% renewably powered. And the motivation right. for them, was a sort of defensive motivation. It was because of Superstorm Sandy and other kinds of risks and threats. Um, and so that's great. That is, a, that is a policy driver, a policy of the state governments in those cases, and, and I'll talk about California in a second, but a policy to try to mitigate or avoid the risk caused by those things. I think from a, from a policy sense, what's missing there is a more positive reason to build microgrids. What can they do, what services could they provide? Right now, if you look at most of those projects, if you look at the, the, the off-taker contracts that they have, right, they, they're essentially the, the only service that they really seem to be providing to the grid is energy, right? and, uh, some black start functions, but they're essentially, they can generate energy, they can island, so they can provide this backup function, and then in blue sky operations, they can provide some energy back or reduce, reduce uh, load, but what about other kinds of services that these microgrids could provide? They're already, they are, in effect, a microcosm of the larger grid. They should be able to provide all the services that a larger grid could could provide and could want. And so policy, I think, has to evolve and start to express other more positive reasons for building a microgrid, in addition to the, the security, uh, resilience, and, and other reasons that we build them. And, and Unfortunately, you, you do have the REV prov- process in New York, but the, the REV process, in, in my opinion, has uh, sort of <coughs> let the vision of a distributed future sort of fade a little bit, and it's looking uh, a little bit less innovative in that sense. Yeah. Connecticut doesn't have the exact same process behind it. Here in California, one of the interesting things about the way you described it is that that a lot of what has given rise and potential to microgrids were developed in other streams. It was developing a value stream for for behind the meter solar. It was in promoting and incenting storage deployment. It was in uh, thinking about DERs really broadly. And it just so happens that all of these streams come together in a microgrid. And so all these different value pieces that we were trying to create, the markets that we were trying to incent and stimulate, also work for the the microgrid case. And I think that, to me, is really illustrative of how policy has to evolve. If it is still, indeed, a policy-driven market, policy has to start to encompass all of these ideas. We have to do two things with that policy, too. We have to, of course, work within the technical parameters and the economic parameters for the utility and the energy sector, but we've gotta capture people and make them understand what is good about this vision. And that's not, they don't wanna know about the duck curve duck curve is important for us to think about, right. but society doesn't care that much about the duck curve. What they care about is light staying on, food staying fresh, uh, their community being resilient in ways that they can understand and see and feel and walk through. They have confidence that, that the solar panels up on that roof are going to be able to provide power through thick and thin, or at least the batteries is attached to them, and maybe there's wind, maybe there's other resources attached there. So I think when I think of policy, it's about expressing people's ideals, ideas priorities and and policy so far has n- not in my view fully articulated that we're right. getting there we're seeing it but it's uh it's going to be a little bit of a yeah long road hope.
0: yeah it's interesting to see like the different almost pilots of policy that are happening around the country right with, with California and New York's always held up but there's been such an interesting push from so many stakeholders that are affecting it and then you have interesting you know corporations like Apple builds their spaceship Uh, up here, a little further north here in California, which is an amazing, if you you don't know about the new headquarters at Apple, Google it and check it out. Um, It's it's amazing, it's 100% renewable, uh, driven by things like fuel cell and wind and and solar. But for the utilities, there's a massive customer base load that just, demand load I should say, that that just maybe went away, right? So this has been a challenge for the utilities as policies moving forward the business case for a lot of the utilities—they've sort of struggled to figure out how to, to, to address and wrestle with the disruptions that are happening. I think PG&E has been a leader in this uh, in, in finding ways to be innovative. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges, David, of, of the utilities, and then how are you looking at sort of addressing this in the future? Okay, so
1: I think. Most or all of you in the room are familiar with PG&E. We're headquartered in San Francisco. We serve a a good bit of northern and central California. We have about 5.4 million electric customers and 4 million gas customers. Um, About 360,000 of our customers have solar systems either on their roofs or behind the meter, which is a pretty sizable number in aggregate sense, as well as a percentage of our customer base. And that's growing at about maybe 5,000 customers a month. About maybe a couple thousand of that 360,000 have storage. Right. So much smaller number, still growing. Um, and of that subset, a very much smaller number actually have put in everything that's necessary in order to allow their facility to operate as a microgrid. Which, according to the DOE definition, right can operate in both grid-connected and grid-disconnected mode. And um, a lot of times when we have conversations like this, we sort of conflate DERs that Mm -hmm. are usually part of a microgrid with the microgrid or the element that makes it a microgrid. But just to be clear, a lot of customers will, again, install solar and or some other form of renewable and then storage. And then say, I pretty much have what I need for a microgrid. And then discover it actually is more complicated and expensive to take that next step to enable islanding, right? So solar costs have gone down dramatically, storage costs are following the same trend, controls have gotten less expensive and more sophisticated, but it's still not quite like saying, I'll take fries with that, to go the step from solar and storage to a microgrid. And so we do have a relative handful of customers that have said we value the resilience benefit, and that's really the equation that's in front of them around is the value of having the ability to withstand some type of climatic or other event worth the extra investment that's necessary in order to be able to allow it to ride through those types of either storms or other natural disasters. And of course, we're seeing more of them. Right. And so I think it has become much more of a front and center issue for customers that have critical loads that either for commercial purposes need to be able to ride through an outage. And again, we strive to do better than 98%. Hopefully, we are. <laughs> um, four or five nines is what we usually uh, target. Um, But there will be outages, right? And for certain types of customers, outages are just not acceptable. So whether you're a data center or a company that has a lot of frozen foods or a military installation, or more and more, a facility that is going to be needing to stand up when the grid is down, Mm -hmm. precisely for the purpose of providing important community services Mm -hmm. like shelter, Mm -hmm. food, a place to charge your phone, um, a place to keep warm and have a shower. Um, those now are becoming, um, you know, community centers, police stations, firehouses, et cetera, is really starting to enter the picture as one of the primary uh, and, or, or use case drivers for a microgrid. So the way that we look at the microgrid, call it market, is really within three different categories. The first one are single-customer-behind-the-meter types of installations, which we have known for a long time, and even harkening back to the prior generation, healthcare facilities and other types of buildings have always had some form of backup generation. Usually it's break before make, but they can continue to provide whatever services they provide in the event of a grid outage. What's different today is, again, a sizable growth in customers adopting clean energy systems and storage, and having that be the underpinning of a behind-the-customer-meter type of microgrid. Some of them still need rotating equipment of some form, depending on the nature of the load. Um, But again, more and more, these are clean energy driven types of systems. Um, And that's really the the sort of primary category of activity that we see. It may well be a campus type installation. right? So it's multiple buildings and multiple loads, but it's a single customer behind a single retail meter. And and many of them have been funded through various forms of grant funds. The California Energy Commission has had a number of waves of grant-funded support for customer projects. One that we worked on somewhat recently is the Blue Lake Rancheria up in Humboldt uh, that was the winner of the Distributech Distributed Resource Integration Project of the Year where they put in solar storage, um, backup generation. They had a biogas digester which unfortunately didn't quite work the way it was intended to but it was still a noteworthy project and they serve again as a collection center in the event of a grid outage. So that's in many respects really the predominant form of microgrids that we see and that's the first major bucket of activity. The second is where pg e for its operational purposes would want to implement a microgrid either because it's the lowest cost way to serve customers so in some sense getting back to you know if we had it to do all over again knowing what we know today we wouldn't run a 20 mile umbilical cord line to serve a relatively small load in some remote area we would serve it through a self-contained type of generation and storage system and so as we look across our service territory today There are a number of cases where we do have relatively small customer loads that are a remote distance from the rest of the grid, but they're connected through a long line that, frankly, once we come up to a need to replace that line, we ought to look at serving that load a different way. Right. Right? So one of the opportunities we have is looking at Angel Island, which is in the middle of San Francisco Bay and is currently connected to Tiburon by a sub-bay or bay floor cable. At some point in the probably near future, it will fail, and it's a pretty expensive Mm -hmm. replacement project. So we're working with the state, which is the customer on the island, and Marine Clean Energy, which actually happens to be the CCA serving energy supply, to look at how we can come up with a configuration that would actually have the island operate as the island.
6: So it Mm -hmm. may not
1: fit the DOE definition, because it wouldn't, at that point going forward, not be grid connected, but it would be a standalone microgrid. Another example of a utility operational opportunity is now in the wake of the wildfires that we experienced last year, we're looking at implementing programs where we would um, proactively de-energize lines. Mm. And in those types of situations, again, we would be shutting down segments of customers in advance of uh, potential wildfire conditions. Um, We would look at setting up, um, again, a means of continuing to serve critical loads that might be downstream of a a, a transmission line that runs through a particularly forested area where we need to de-energize that line, but the downstream customers would be a way that we could set up what we're calling a pre-engineered interconnection hub to be able to move generation in quickly in order to continue to keep a line segment with critical customers operating while we're going through this what we call public safety power shutoff. So again, that second category is really ways in which we would be implementing a microgrid or something like a microgrid in order to allow us to do our job better. And then the third category, and I'll just quickly identify this and move on because I'm sure we'll talk about this more, is where you have multiple customers that are sort of geographically proximate that want to be part of a group of microgrid. All right. And that's an area where we don't have any of those today. Um, but again, if you can imagine you know, a fire station, a police station, a community center that would all be kind of very close to each other, maybe on the same circuit, uh, without any other customers or very many other customers between them, and we can figure out a way to put in the appropriate sectionalizing equipment to allow that grouping of customers to um, separate from the grid when the grid is down. And if there's, you know, say, solar on one building and storage in another and some other form of generation and third, you'd actually have a total being more than the sum of the parts type of situation. And we do have a project that we're moving forward with, that we're working uh, with the Schatz Energy Research Center up in Humboldt uh, at the Arcata Airport, which recently received, again, a CEC grant to move forward with a multi-customer microgrid that happens to be on an electrical cul-de-sac. It's the end of a PG&E circuit. This serves the airport, the Coast Guard, a couple of other customers, I think there are 17 accounts in total, where all the customers would opt in, um, they would all be part of this microgrid, and we would again install equipment in order to allow it to sectionalize when the rest of the upstream circuit is down. Um, and the work that we have to do is figure out how, what are the costs, who pays for those costs, what are the benefits, who receives the benefits. So um, we're planning on working on some form of a tariff that would govern again, what amounts to a multi-customer microgrid. Interesting. So those are the three different ways that we're viewing yeah. the broader microgrid market.
2: Hey, John, can I pick up yeah, something please. really quick that David said that was really important that was kind of buried in there around the difference between DERs and microgrids um, and, and picking up your question around policy and, yeah. and the role of policy. We'd like to talk about these big, sexy federal policies, um, but the truth of the matter is that in many, I dare say, potentially most jurisdictions, um, allowing DERs to sever from the grid is still not legal in right. a lot of the country. So when Walmart started doing DERs and rooftop solar you know, back in 2008, in most of those locations, they can't sever from the grid if the grid goes down. Right. And, and yes, there is a technical and cost barrier that a lot of customers are like, oh, you mean, I have to put some I have to put switches in. and but actually, for for Walmart, that was not the barrier. It was a policy barrier that we were not allowed to install those switches and systems that would allow the systems. So sure. and from a Walmart perspective, we were basically from engineering for when the policy caught up to what we wanted to be able to do. So we knew that rooftop solar wasn't actually built, giving us resilience when we were installing it. In fact, most of the solar plus storage and even the bloom projects that we were installing weren't giving us resilience yet, but we were preparing for when the policy environment caught up to um, our engineering, because it's really not hard from an engineering perspective, but particularly smaller utilities. And we face this now, even in Ontario, um, this, this struggle with utilities saying you can either run in parallel or you can be an islanded system, but you can't be both. And so working with policymakers and utilities to help them understand and get comfortable because they want ninety, you know, nine nine or five nines or whatever it is you want when when suddenly you have a bunch of new little guys installing assets behind the meter right. and how do these guys trust that we're not just gonna knock the whole thing down.
7: Right.
2: Right. So there's a lot of there's a lot of things complicating how we get to systems that give us services in a blue sky environment and resilience in a black sky environment. You know, it's it's there are business model challenges, there are policy challenges. I think those are the bigger challenges, more actually than technological and engineering. The technology and the engineering is not that complicated, actually.
4: Not to jump comment because I yeah. want to add one other point. Do you, okay. Well, I was just going to jump in and say I, th- I think that's right. It's not the technology; it's it's the policy that's that's causing the barriers here. To that point, and California has some very innovative proceedings going on, the distribution resources planning proceeding, the uh, integrated distributed energy resources proceeding, the IDER proceeding, we're awash in alphabet. (laughs) Uh, But what those proceedings are doing is they're trying to create a policy environment that would allow for these DERs to operate as a value stream for the grid. And once you do that, then you make it possible to also have them island, right? I mean, I think you need, you, you need to do both of those things. Uh, I, I don't think it would be enough from a policy side just to say, okay, we can island, you, you can island. You have to say, we can build in the capacity for you to island, and the reason for that investment, the reason you would do that is manifold. You have all the security and, and uh, uh, resilience objectives, but you're also, you're trying to add value to the grid, and we've gotta find a way to value That And that's what the distribution planning proceeding is supposed to be doing. We've got hosting capacity analysis as part of that, but it's also really about getting down into the nitty-gritty of planning. So the other thing, this is what, sorry, I'm delivering this, this, but if we look out across the country right now, IRPs, integrated resource planning, is becoming, more often than not, something with teeth. We've seen some quasi-IRP proceedings that are more or less just put it in front of the commission, it gets approved and, and, and moves on. But now we're starting to see these, these integrated plans which are trying to take account of the islandability, the functionality, the, the value to the grid of distributed energy resources and build up to decide where do you then still need central station resources, where do you need other kinds of resources because it can't be provided by other resources. We're seeing that, that proliferate and I think that's a pretty interesting trend. We've just got to make those have, have some teeth.
0: David, before you comment, just real quickly, I'd like to say we're about to go to some audience questions So sort of after this, uh, so if we can grab some mics, and if you've got a question, be prepared to sort of raise your hand. We'll come around, too.
1: Sure. I'm actually going to provide comments
0: on yeah, both sides. Yeah, <laughs> The first one is, how many people have a solar system on their roof? For the how audience, is may- a handful of hands of one Right.
1: How many people think <laughs> that when the grid is down, their system will continue to provide them with power? And you probably have a bimodal inverter, correct?
7: I've got two teceles in my. Mm-hmm. Which, which the utility can dispatch
1: it. So you're an insider for everybody <laughs> else. <laughs> and, and again, I have heard a lot of people say that they've, you know, they've gone off grid, you know, they put in a system because it gives them important backup power. Most My of them are not. My husband
2: wouldn't let me invest it. In it. <laughs> I wanted to, in fairness.
1: (laughs) But but just as an observation, again, the vast majority of systems have inverters that are single-function inverters that once the grid is down, the PV system doesn't produce power. And I think a lot of customers, for better or for worse, are believing that they now have a system that would allow them to operate um, in islanded mode. Sacha, I just wanted to pick up on something that you said too, which is consistent, Miranda, with your comment, which is, you know, I don't mean to specifically compartmentalized discussions but I think it is important when we talk about the types of things that DERs might be able to provide the grid in blue sky mode, that you know those those are conversations that are taking place across a large number of proceedings. You mentioned several of them. Those aren't microgrids necessarily. Correct. They may have the added feature of having all the additional equipment necessary to allow it to island but they are things that are essentially transactions that can and we are moving in a direction where they hopefully will be occurring, but specifically when that customer is connected to the grid. And so it's in a blue sky operating mode.
0: Is, is the do you see the um, growth of the storage market affecting those proceedings? Like, the, are, are we going to see more because storage is actually becoming
1: a real thing now? <laughs> I, I mean, I do. I think that's when we talk about DERs providing services to the grid. Yeah. Um, from a utility perspective usually that implies a certain amount of dispatch
5: capability yeah. so, so one thing david mentioned and it's funny just because i've been on military installations with uh solar assets uh who where personnel are confused about that as well and so i mean it like Meaning more than think frequently secure. Yeah. Believe that they that they have you know they see the panels and they think that that will help them maintain operations during a grid outage. I think we do ourselves a real disservice. Like we've all participated in some capacity um, where. You know, we've articulated an argument about why this strengthens energy security and resilience. Um, when we, what we mean is, it has the potential to strengthen energy security and right. resilience mm-hmm. if we can make the investments. And right. I think it gets back to everything that I think we're all talking about, which is um, today it is very hard to pay for um, an increased level of service from a, an electric system, at least in my experience. And what. Even if I wanted to pay and even if I had the resources to do it, I don't know exactly how I would go about that. And so how do we create products and services that allow for um, that enhanced level of service? And I think that's something that we're just at very nascent stages to. Um, and, and I do think I think we may be underplaying the technology challenge of that a little bit in this discussion, but... Um, just because it's, um, it's, it, it is a big challenge.
0: Yeah, please raise your hand if you have any questions. Before I call on you, I'd say one, we are supposed to be talking about economics as well. One thing <laughs> is, is, someone who finances projects, and um, all of this uncertainty leads to a higher cost of capital. Right? Mm-hmm. So the, who's going to take that risk to do those projects, to spend the money, to do the deals? The higher cost of capital is causing us to have higher, project, higher costs within the projects. The more certainty begins to, to come around and the more these things begin to... Like, st- solar is a great example. Early-stage solar, very expensive capital. Now it's becoming, not yet commoditized, but much cheaper deals. Storage is in a position today where it's still relatively high cost of capital, but people are beginning to trust the technology. The policies are in place. Microgrid is still far from that today because of all of the policy uncertainty around it. And please introduce yourself.
8: Sure. Hi guys, I'm Heather Warner uh, from Sempervaria. And I have two kind of comments. One, I want to expand a little bit, John, on what you're saying in terms of, okay, so it's high cost of capital because there's a whole bunch of uncertainty. If you were going to stack rank, what are the uncertainties you need to see removed to start dropping that cost of capital down? What are what's the, what's the low-hanging fruit? What's the, the biggest ROI in terms of, of uncertainty principles? And the other is, I do want to push back a little bit on David, in terms of, you're right, there is this conversation about DERs can provide services to the grid, but one of the challenges that we have is stacked DERs in a microgrid can provide a lot more services in one single installation, and there isn't, to Mike's point, there's no, I mean, whether you want to consider it value stacking or anything, there's no single or series of Aggregated values of services that a microgrid can do, as opposed to a silo like what can storage do, what can solar do, etc. Right now, each of those has worked separately. How do you see the progression in policy and regulation to get to that kind of aggregated values economic proposal? I'm gonna go first. Then.
1: Sure. <laughs> um, so your point is correct. And again, we, you know the, um, the proceedings that Sachin mentioned that are underway at the California Public Utilities Commission, by the way, I believe each one of them was supposed to be an umbrella proceeding. <laughs> and now there are their own self-standing proceedings. Yeah, There's <laughs> discussion around tying a bigger umbrella. <laughs> exactly. We would be looking for what it is that the customer or end user would be providing across the meter if it's result of behind the meter resources or in front of the meter and so if it's a composite associated with a number of different der elements um, you know again we would want to transact with an entity that would be providing us with defined services depending on what the needs of the particular location are so yes if it's if it's a customer that just simply has one technology versus multiple technologies and the multiple technologies produce a different characteristic of services that could be provided, we will be looking at that composite.
0: So to, go to your question on the economics, how do we sort of prioritize addressing the risks? I think there's, first of all, um, you know, the, the, the heart of a lot of this is it just comes down to this is still project finance, right? And the heart of it, it is it's complicated and very few folks will, uh, are, people will wrestle with it. But the, the proj- for those that aren't familiar, the idea, the challenges of just pure project finance is larger institutional capital that is less and more or more efficient and less cost of capital than like venture capital money or private equity money. Uh, they look at project finance and every deal is different, right? And when you got to spend all of those resources to figure out those deals, then you should, you, there'll be a higher cost of capital. Now, why microgrids are challenging is the technology risk is still it's getting better. It's still there though. So you're you're not just betting on this a system you're betting on now a system of systems right so is the software that managing it you know really proven is the uh, you know the solar and the, the the fuel cell and these other pieces that are all combined into the system of systems proven the reality is we haven't seen that many of them out there to, to really have the test case to say yeah we know this integration of these different systems work so that technology risk is high um, and then I think a lot of it has to do with also sort of the risk around the revenue. So how how are we going to actually see the revenue streams into the folks that are backing this um, uh, play out? So whether it be around uh, what's going on with storage with, de- with demand and other other re- revenue streams, you know, if if the PP, if this microgrid we saw this in the City Art, if the microgrid goes down and the power from the fuel cells could never be actually used but would the city be willing to still pay for that power that wasn't used, right? In this case, they ended up saying yes but that's a complicated thing to solve, right? And when you're solving that for each and every one of your investments, one, you're not putting out massive amounts of capital and so that capital will be really expensive. So those pieces begin to come together as more and more of this is getting defined but I think those risks are still pretty heavy by the way, what John just said can be shortened
1: into the famous microgrid refrain, which is when you've seen one microgrid, you've, seen, you've seen one, one mi- microgrid. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah. Another question? I think we had one up here. Wait for the mic, please, just because we're... When we talk about resiliency, and, and,
7: uh, and like Mike, Mike was saying, well, it's a, it's a promise of resiliency, but. But, you know, in effect, when, uh, and I was expecting California with rolling brownouts, when when every day our solar is going back into the grid and, uh, and feeding clean energy back into the grid, taking a load, you know, taking loads off what would otherwise be larger loads. So is that, so I would, in my mind, that's, you know, uh, you know, putting resiliency back into the grid—that's making the grid stronger and more re- more resilient to brownouts, for instance, or rolling brownouts, or whatever. Has has California seen ha- has Virginia seen the um, added solar impact that the concept of rolling brownouts? Or you would solved that long ago?
1: <laughs> so I, I apologize. I missed the first part of the question. You want to know whether our grid is more resilient as a result of the three hundred. Yeah, the backflow of power
7: from solar, does that is that, you know, as a distributed resource, the whole idea is that at the end of the long string of the umbilical cord, you know, it, it gets weak and everything in between can affect it. So now when you have solar, you know, coming in from, you know, all all different areas along the umbilical cord that that's uh, that should help, you know, offset you know, brownout conditions that would normally have happened,
1: yes or no? You know, it's a big, it depends, right? So I know that we have invested more money in our grid in order to make it more capable of integrating two-way power flows, right, which we get from rooftop systems, fairly, very few of the systems are actually non-export, most of them actually are NEM systems that have the ability to export and we've needed to fortify our system to accommodate that two-way power flow. In some cases, you may then, you may get benefits if the solar is being produced at exactly the same time that that circuit peaked, but, and, and we have a large number of circuits, 3000. The system overall though, again, apropos to the duck curve comment is, is peaking much later in the day. Um, but there are some circuits that are more midday peaking circuits, and it depends on what the characteristics of the load are. So it's hard to make a broad generalization. Other than I would say, generally speaking, we have needed to invest more money in the grid in order to enable it to accommodate customers putting solar on their roofs. And
7: so my so my battery is dispatchable. I'm Green Mountain Power uh, in Vermont, and and so I I'm in effect a, a, a microgrid in my house because because and it's dispatchable. So why wouldn't you just go towards you know, straight rules for microgrids that, that made them dispatchable, that, that that was just, you know, as, as opposed to them just islanded. Uh, because obviously the more work you get out of your battery and your equipment, the more value it has, the more bankability that it could have, uh, et cetera.
1: And I'll, I'll just offer a quick response. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a deeper conversation. But again, just to try to separate, it, it, it would be a battery, whether it's part of a microgrid or not, that we might be looking for ways in which we could work with the customer to have that project dispatched in a way that helps us manage our grid more effectively, in some cases potentially help us avoid future investments in infrastructure if we have something that we believe would provide us with equivalent service at a lower cost. That may or may not be part of a microgrid, <laughs> so that battery could be part of a microgrid, or it could just simply be again a. a piece of the do the tools? To the it's
0: simple. The tools exist at the utility level, though, to to actually go into that basement and pull the power from the Tesla battery.
1: We are working on that now. We have a project that's underway that we have gone out to the market in Oakland, um, called the Oakland Clean Energy Initiative, where there's an aging power plant. We don't own it. It's under a reliability-must-run contract with the California ISO. It's getting close to its retirement age, and we want to be able to, to have it be replaced by clean resources when it does retire. Um, and so we have gone to the market in order to get bids for entities, whether it's customers using behind-the-meter resources or developers in front of the meter resources, to provide us with capability that would allow us to essentially keep that area um, powered up when this power plant retires. Uh, we also have a number of pilot projects um, under the DERMs umbrella, where we are learning how we can actually not only have visibility into the operating characteristics of behind-the-meter resources, but also dispatch capability in order to be able to help support the needs of the grid.
7: Yeah, I think the pilot I'm in supposedly does that. Green mm-hmm. Mountain Power. That they. That's the whole. That's my whole contract with them. That they right. can take it when they need it to. Mm-hmm cut, you know, from buying expensive peak power. All right.
0: So
4: I don't know if this is a question to you, David, or, or a response, but I, I think the technical challenge of, of backflow, right, the two-way flow of energy is one piece of this, but an, another piece is curtailment. I mean, we're, when we get to high penetrations of solar, this is to the duck curve question, and uh, when we have a mismatch between load and supply... You need to get that dispatchability, but the issue is not so much, I, this, is what I, this is my question to you, I don't think it's so much about managing the black flow, we have to do that, there, there's certainly investments to, to manage the two-way flows, but it's the, it's the lack of ability to, uh, to prevent curtailment that is, seems to be giving us a lot of headache right now, is that, is that fair?
1: So in, in some cases, yeah. It depends on, again, not at the system level, but depending on the characteristics locally where you might have a large amount of solar that's actually pushing a sizable amount of energy upstream on the grid where we may need to install more equipment in order to absorb it before it gets to the nearest substation, for example, where it might cause some equipment damage. So yeah, curtailment is one other pathway we Prefer not to have to, you know, engage in curtailing clean energy supplies, um, but the physics of energy being delivered on a particular line segment, depending on how much load is there, could, again, create the need for us to make investments in order to absorb the power somehow.
0: Are platforms like Stem and AMS
1: uh, helping to address that for you guys? Yeah, but they're still in their relatively early stages. Of course, stages. yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
5: So, so th- this highlights a really important distinction that I think um, about the conversation that we're having, which is I think everything you that we've talked about in this colloquy has been focused on reliability and not resilience, and that those characteristics really need to be delineated as a part of this conversation when we talk about and think about values and business models. And um, so David, you've mentioned um, four or five nines and, and other reliability metrics. I I would consider resilience, um, you know, lots of different definitions of it. John articulated one at the White House that had six verbs. And uh, so, so my definition of resilience is the adaptive capacity to maintain critical operations during times of disruption. That is one way of thinking about it. And the important characteristic of that is like, well, then you gotta ask, what's the disruption? So what do you wanna be resilient to and for how long? And and that opens up a different value path um, that starts getting into um, how is solar diversifying um, your current capability of meeting your critical requirements um, and helping do things like, and and this is happening in the military, this is happening in other contexts, how, um, how are we using a solar asset to lengthen um, the um, amount of fuel storage that we have on a given installation to meet critical operations, and I think when you start distinguishing between reliability and resilience, you get to interesting, different questions that might get you, um, you know, closer to what we heard before about really stacking and understanding the comp- the complete value proposition of some of these projects. All right.
3: Any other questions from the audience before I? Yeah. Oh, right, perfect. Sorry. Yeah. I, so I wanted to ask a question. Please um, introduce yourself. Oh, yeah. Uh, so Elliot Hines. I'm a partner at Kroll and Mooring. We, um, I do energy project development and finance. So, my question is really around, uh, you know, the realistic kind of guarantees in putting together these these microgrids hmm. as a practical matter. Is it going to have to be de- developed with one party that is? essentially wrapping all the technologies in order to really get this financed you know John and, and, and also I, I guess the other part of this to me is when you think about um, how much has been already has already been deployed in terms of you know solar and some of these different um, uh, these different technologies, is it possible that you can really employ microgrids, in a situation where you have assets that have different ages to them. So you've got a military project that installed solar five years ago, and now they want a microgrid. How do you see that? Again, it's tied into, again, the guarantee question, but how do you see that practically being, you know, affected in a way that works for the vendors, that works for the customer, and that is financeable?
2: So I would say from an off-taker perspective, it's far preferable to have a single provider that can wrap all of the technologies and systems together. Well, so this is where I think the the role of the federal government and what the federal government has been doing in microgrids uh, has advanced several companies with expertise in this space. So there are already companies that are leading, but there aren't that many of them. Um, And the federal government can sometimes invest more uh, because they're investing through CRADA or through R&D dollars uh, or other mechanisms to make it work. Uh, so we we had a summit called the Business Renewable Summit last April, and one of the members, a large chemical company, ha- hosted a roundtable, and he basically put the problem in the center of the table, which is, I want renewable energy, I want grid servicing during blue sky. I want to be able to sell back services through voltage regulation or peak shaving or whatever the the utility wants from my microgrid. And I want it to replace my UPS and my diesel genset. Who's out there that does this? It was a room full of suppliers and literally they all said, not us yet. Mm -hmm, There isn't any, I mean, there are some so, if you look at uh, who built the nearly 100% renewable energy microgrid at, at Otis Air Force Base, that was Raytheon, right? If you look at who built the the microgrids that are not necessarily renewable through the Spiders program in the Department of Defense,
0: explain what the Spiders program is. Sorry. Explain what the Spiders program. Um, so the
2: Spiders program was a program uh, launched by the Department of Defense in maybe 2010, 2011 timeframe uh, to really look at fully resilient microgrids on military installations. Not necessarily focused on renewable generation, but a couple of them did incorporate renewable generation um, that would allow a military installation to be fully self-sufficient for long periods of time in case of an outage. And there were a couple of very specific vendors that built those systems and so you are now starting to see companies that are building expertise in this space and there are some others and my you know Mike works with several of them that are now building models and so we're in this just really fascinating sort of dynamic time where customers want something vendors are trying to build it uh, financiers are trying to finance it but we're all kind of dancing around and, and trying to get to a place where we can stamp it out in the way that we do rooftop solar PPAs or remote wind P- VPPAs.
0: Yeah, I think you almost have to divide the market. There's the public sector mush market, the federal yeah. municipality, university, states, hospitals that don't have the capital themselves to put up and do this work. So, mm-hmm. they're, they're, for instance, there's these system integrators, in many cases Raytheon or these what are known as ESCOs, energy service companies, mm-hmm. that have the capability of doing this, but really how are those financed, right? What they're doing is they're putting together the structure, they're putting together, in essence, a special purpose entity, right? And then they're, in, in the federal side or even the, the mush market side, You know, they're basically paying off what would be really sort of a PPA structure, but it's not as an energy service structure. Um, but we're not seeing many of them right now in the federal side because of hamstrings around the federal reality of having to actually save money off your yeah. utility bill there. If you could pay a premium for that security, that was called the Energy Security Premium, the Office of Management and Budget. This is way more monkey than you ever want to get. If you want to know the most powerful organization in the federal government, it's the Office of Management and Budget. It's just—I want to is a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> but they won't—they won't, they won't let them pay that premium. Right? And on the, the private sector side, most private sector companies—I don't know, use Walmart as an example, but it may—they may say, "Look, I can actually borrow money." cheaper than you can, so I'm not going to pay you to finance the special purpose entity to do this holistic thing, right? So that's where I think we're struggling right now as an industry to say, you know, how do we put together this system of systems and then finance it in a microgrid PPA that I think has been the sort of holy grail out there. I think the capacity is probably there to do it technically. Um, I think certain policy changes uh, at the state or local level or federal level could make that happen for the mush markets. Um, the private sector still has to wrestle with how they, you know, how, how they want to do it.
2: Can I make one more comment on
0: yeah? Yeah. So The, yeah. the, the comment was for the, those in the podcast, the mush market has handcuffs on the, the amount of time they can contract it that out. That's absolutely right. Going back to the Office of Management and Budget.
5: <laughs> John, I would definitely download your OMB scoring podcast. So yes. I don't know how many other people would. but So I would, I would
2: make one more quick comment. And I, I agree that, um, that energy service companies are well-positioned to be leaders in this space. If they want to, they're really the ones that are well-positioned there. But the others... The other sector that I think is really well positioned, if they want to, are the vertically integrated utilities. Hmm. Because they already know how to wrap technologies, they know how to generate, they know how to transmit, they know how to deliver power. And so it's, it's about taking that expertise and there are some utilities, yours is one of them, who are really leading in this space who are really saying, instead of protecting the hub-and-spoke model, I think yours is one of them too, by the way, rather than protecting the hub-and-spoke model, how do we actually encourage a distributed system that we can then run? We still run it. Yes, you own it in your house, but we can run it. And there's, there are several others that are really actually taking a leading role in that, and those companies are bankable, they know how to take risk. They know how to invest in technology. They know how to integrate technology. So I think the vertically integrated utility space is some place that we should really be watching. And those that are leading in the space um, can really crack the code for a lot of us.
0: And the policy question around allowing them to do that, right? Allowing mm-hmm. that vertically mm-hmm. utility to get behind the meter is key. That, that, I was going to yeah. make that comment. So yeah. thank you. Yeah. yeah.
6: Hello, I'm Pablo. I'm from Paraguay, South America. Um, I have a question. Um, thinking of what, what we can do instead of what the government can do can do for us, what is the best way, the best method, technology or product that the private sector can promote to help prevent blackouts or the government to, to I'm sorry um, to have a, a high cost of distribution infrastructure um, as long as the country or the towns or the cities continue growing. So, what's the technology? That, what's the method? Yeah. Is it maybe it's a, a practical thing that we just need to change some habits we have, or yeah. the product? Which one would be the best from the private sector? You think we can actually do to to promote this or to contribute to this?
0: Yeah, I, you know, I'll I'll add to that and sort of make this a little bit of a speed round and say, is there a technology out there that you think can, is really going to be game changing to help drive this, or is it maybe that? <laughs> It's not a single technology, it's a system of systems. And I'll start with Mike.
5: Yeah, I would actually go back to the question before and, and and focus again on what I would describe as productizing. Like, how do we find ways of assembling different commercial off-the-shelf available technologies in something that's easy to replicate and scale um, to the level that we need, um, and how do we find ways to pay for it? So that's... Um, you know that's a lot of different things but um, but it, it is just about i think mostly branding productizing and finding um, connecting that supply with demand
2: so i'm going to add on to mike's by saying it it should be regionally specific productizing so <laughs> I, I i'm not familiar with with Pergway and what the resources are but one of the beauties in my view of microgrids and distributed resources is that you don't have to have the same sort type of generation everywhere. Mm-hmm. So solar plus storage works great in a lot of places. Microwind um, works good in some places. Microhydro works great in some places. Geothermal works well in some places. Um, one thing that we rarely talk about is biomass and biogas. We have, a, we have an army base that is fully severable from the grid and has severed for an entire week 100% re- renewably powered on biomass. So, you know, for for the Paraguay scenario, I can't say what's right. But if you have a particular community that's getting a lot of rolling brownouts, that community may be rich in in a particular resource that makes sense for a microgrid there. Um, so, that. Makes productizing even more complex. But if you have a, if you have a, you, you imagine someday a, a brochure that has 15 different types of microgrids, depending on what your resources
6: are. Paraguay has uh, very big water. I have very big uh, hydro. hydro water dams. Right. The problem is not the generation because we only use five percent of the electricity we generate, but and we export everything to Brazil Argentina, mm-hmm. and Argentina and mm-hmm. Bolivia. The problem is the distribution inside the country. Maybe it's I don't know, 50 or 60 or 100 years old, and they never change it. So we have a lot of blackouts because of that. I don't know that I have much to add. All right.
4: <laughs> I'm not sure I do either. I'm not I'm not really a technologist. Uh, I, I do think if you want the private sector to be involved, to your point, we really have to productize. We really have to. It, there's got to be some plug-and-play element to this. Something that something that will make the utilities comfortable with that point of interconnection for this microgrid, that they're going to be able to get the flow of information and the flow of services across that interface that makes them comfortable with it. And and I think, David, to, and we're probably not going to get to it, but talking about the Berkeley project, one of the things that was missing was an ability for PG&E to provide a microgrid tariff and to actually provide some of the services that might have been necessary to create that microgrid, which could have been done... By the city of Berkeley, but there was no way that we had no, no uh, pathway to socialize the cost of moving twelve kva lines around mm-hmm. and adding different transformers and right. We didn't have that pathway. Add in some policy.
0: Color to that about the so. Let's get to a, we have a limited time, but we won't get to both of these. But we, we do have two great pairs here
4: that work together on a variety of projects. You guys want to talk about the microgrid in Berkeley for a second? So, quick background: the city of Berkeley. Uh, Northern California uh, had an opportunity to put in a fairly large solar installation in the downtown grid, uh, right in the downtown corridor. They wanted to use that solar capacity to power critical services within the downtown footprint. Uh, The problem very quickly came up that those building loads were not contiguous, uh, that the map of the 12 kV distribution lines uh, and the, the location of the transformers wasn't ideal for a microgrid. Um, pg and worked with us very closely in mapping all that out. Uh, the, the solar project was going to go ahead. So the really the only question was, could they make a microgrid out of it? Could they make an islandable functioning microgrid to serve these critical loads? It turned out that was not feasible. And what, one of the barriers that we ran into was that high cost to moving some of those, those 12 kVA lines around in order to configure this microgrid. Uh, it wasn't so easy to sectionalize. And, and so who was going to bear those costs? And, and that's what it came down to. The, the city has got a sort of hybrid version with storage on the in the critical loads, and it will use some sort of netting of that production to to help it out. But um, ultimately, that project did not result in a in a true functioning microgrid.
0: David, let me ask you from the utilities perspective. You know, as being part of that pilot, are there lessons that you all learned that you're sort of taking forward into other opportunities? So. I had mentioned the Arcata project uh, about a half
1: hour ago, and I think um, some of the things that are associated with the configuration of the Arcata project weren't present with the the Berkeley. Satch had mentioned, in the case of Berkeley, you had four buildings, but they were located a distance away from each other, and there were a number of intervening customers. And as much as I would like to think the sports bar that's in between the garage (laughs) and the city hall, would have been the load that I would have wanted powered up. During
4: that
3: if a disaster be,
4: happens on a Sunday, you still have to watch the game. <laughs> exactly. I mean. um, we, we,
1: we don't have an easy way to shut off non-critical customers that might be located in between the loads that you actually want powered up. If you mm-hmm. want solar surplus from the garage to get to City Hall, you can't count on our, we have a uh, automated metering infrastructure system um... they can do remote shutoff but if the grid is down for you know an earthquake we can't count on that remote shutoff capability. So they'd have to go knock on each customer's door and ask them to please turn off their power which just isn't a practical way of Aye. organizing it so it, it you know again the situation of the loads and the resources relative to each other we're just quite a bit different than the situation we have up in Arcata, where you do have more of an economically viable proposition because the customers are all adjacent to each other On a given circuit. And so I guess the lesson learned in some sense is that um, the economics are difficult when you have a, again, a geographic proximization issue of the customers that you want to be included as part of a multi customer microgrid and who pays for the costs associated with what might be required from an engineering perspective to tie them together on the same circuit.
0: So, what we're saying is it really easy to do?
1: <laughs> Snap your fingers. One, on
0: stuff. one final question. We've only got a few short minutes. Yeah, sure. So,
4: so talking about cost, um, let's say you have a solar and storage system set up. Uh, what is the percent increase in cost to convert that into a microgrid? And then, let's say you had
1: solar plus storage plus a diesel generator. Uh, would that add make it even more
0: costly? Um, are there other considerations? Yeah, so what's that premium, right, you're asking? And I think it's probably hard to say. It all depends on the size of the system. Is it a campus? Is it a building? Um, and then really, I think the ability to judge that premium will really depend on what technologies you're bringing in across the board. Anything else to say to that? Uh, I'll, I'll just
1: add one other quick comment. Yeah. Again, the answer you're going to get in almost every circumstance is it depends. And one of the key yeah. considerations is not just simply how to the solar and storage, it might be there, and backup generator that might be there, interact with the current load. But one of the key questions is what will be your use case for mm-hmm. emergency circumstances? Yeah, yeah. Because it may well be that you're going to use that high school gymnasium in a fundamentally different way when you need to use it as a collection site for people to come to when the broader grid is out. So you have to really look at your islanded uh, load car- load requirements relative to the resources that you might have. Uh, if you have a backup generator, it gives you more flexibility, obviously. Um, but then you need sophisticated controls in order to make sure that you can keep demand and supply in balance in the same tightly configured way that we do as a general matter a- across
0: all of our grid. Yeah.
2: Well, it depends is the right answer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it depends.
0: Okay. So, First of all, I want to thank the, the panel for, I think, a really interesting conversation. Uh, I think, you know, the tough part about the, concept, the conversation around the economics and financing of microgrids right now is because we hit on this many times. It's, it depends, right? It, and as David said, you've seen one microgrid, you've seen one microgrid. Uh, and until we can figure out a little more of a rinse-and-repeat mechanism, the cost of capitals will re- remain high. The technology is getting there, the policy is getting there, the software is getting there. Uh, now, you know, the question is when does the the business model get there that begin to really open up this market. Um, for, for those listening to the podcast, you know, please go to Clean Capital's website, www.cleancapital.com to get more episodes. I specifically wanted to thank uh, Solar Power International and, and Energy Storage International for their support uh, and the opportunity to do this and challenge each of you to sign up. For those in the room, come back next year in Salt Lake City. For those that are listening online, uh, please join us in Salt Lake City next year for another event and uh thank you for everyone for being a part of this thanks Thanks for listening in today's conversation find more episodes on cleancapital.com itunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you like what you hear be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review we look forward to continuing our conversation on energy innovation and finance with you